Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Joining us today is Robert Zarenko. Zarenko is a professional artist currently living and working in the Metro Detroit area. He has multiple degrees in art and has spent his entire career in the creative field making art, educating people, and trying to make art experiences more accessible for everyone. In October 2019, he was one of the jurists at Kaleidoscope of Expression, which celebrated pride at the Pontiac Creative Arts Center. The exhibit's goal was to showcase the varied works and talents of LGBTQ artists. Zarenko's work revolves around the intersection of ideals embedded in gender identity, sexuality, popular culture, and the context in which they are presented. His passion for nature and harmony drives his work, and he loves connecting the world back to itself through people and art. Zarenko has participated in many exhibits locally, including the Trans Day of Activism and Gender X shows at Affirmations Community Center, the NSO Detroit Man in the City event, Hamtramck Neighborhood Arts Fest, and the Breaking Borders Fine Arts Show and Harmony and the Cosmic Connection Show at the Tangent Gallery in Detroit. When not teaching, judging, or making art on canvas, Robert is making personal art as a tattoo artist. Tattoos are a world tradition that have cropped up in every single part of the world from time to time before we could even know it. He believes it's one of those practices that has a deep and worldwide history, which is one of the things he loves about it. A community activist, Zarenko is also planning the first Pride celebration in the city of Hazel Park, Michigan, in the summer of 2020. Robert, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? You know, I'm doing well, Michelle. Thank you for uh-huh. asking. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I'll tell you, um, we met, like, at the Kaleidoscope exhibit, and... I love art, and I try to look at pieces as to what they what they mean to me, and and I had looked at a number of the pieces, and one of the ones that, that you judged as as the the winning piece had been one that had really sort of spoke to me. But after you talked about it, I went back and looked at it again, and and picked mm-hmm. up, up different things. How long? Have you loved art and been an artist? 
you know, I have loved art and been an artist, I would have to say, my whole life. I know that's a little cliche, but it's been something that I've dedicated my life to ever since I was very young. You know, I knew that it was something that I loved. And once I started doing it, I just never stopped. I think many people draw and color and make stuff as kids. And some of us stop and some of us just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And I just never stopped. Now, I had watched an interview and um, that you did. And one of the people who you said who was like one of your biggest supporters was your mom. Does she still have like old pictures that you drew like from way back in the day? You know, she does. Her She has <laughs> bins and boxes of all this art that I've made since I was very little. So if you're ready for a lifelong <laughs> retrospective of my work, all you got to do is go to my mom's house. And she would love to show you all of my work. <laughs> so, so she was... Um, was she a big influence in your, a big, you know, I know she supported you, but was she a big influence in your choosing art as a profession? You know, she was one of those probably few parents, I think, that actually encouraged me to do art. I think a lot of, a lot of my students, you know, their parents, they're like, when their kid tells them they want to be an artist, they're like, oh, but that's great, but you should do something else, you know, but she never was like that. She was always like, you're really good at this. You should keep going. You can do this. You should go to school, you know, go to grad school, do all this stuff. And she never really gave up on it. She Even when I was like, man, I should get a nine to five, she was like, mm-hmm. oh, but, but you're so, you know, you, you do such a good job and you're so thoughtful and you can, she also believed that, you know, art has a healing quality to it and I could help people through it. And that has definitely influenced what I do, especially with studio work and some of the other projects that I've done, you know, I truly believe that art is like one of the fundamentals of community and mental health and expression and all of that stuff as well. So she always was kind of on point with that. She's very creatively inclined. She would tell you that she's not, but she totally is. She loves her crafts okay. and okay. making stuff all the time. But she you know, I, was. when you when you said that, it makes me think there's a commercial where, I mean, it's somebody and, like, they're, they're talking. I don't, I don't even remember what it is, but they go in and there's a couple of sitting there and they say to this waitress, well, what are you, you going to do for your life? And she said something about being an artist. And they said, yes, but have you thought about what you're going to do to make a living? And, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and that's something that you hear from so many people. Like, I have always written, even as a kid, and, yes, my mother kept little my little bitty books that I would make and staple together. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to love moms. But, you know, there was always that part, well, you know, but, you know, that's nice that you like to do that, but, you know, be sure you have something that even you can fall back on or something that you can make a, make a living off of. And it shouldn't be that way or the other. The art should be valued, you know, as much. I think one of the, the cool things that I found out about you was that 
your mom let you put, and it wasn't an actual tattoo, but a tattoo of the Golden Girls on her back. Yeah. a picture of it. How cool, I, how cool was that? <laughs> you know, that you know, that was very cool. That's the thing about my mom is she like she's got a sense of humor. She knows that even when I do something that seems kinda crazy, it uh is for a good cause. And that was a that wasn't a real tattoo, that was a temporary tattoo, I will say. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But uh that was for an assignment in school where we had to do it was a portrait assignment, and so we had to do a portrait of a famous person. So I was like, instead of just making a painting of someone, I'm going to create this whole story about this person that loves someone so much that they have a portrait of them tattooed on their body. (laughs) (laughs) And I just have to do everything extra. I can't do anything normal. It just has to be extra. And she was a willing participant. Uh-huh. Yeah, she said, yeah, let's make this happen. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. How long, did well, it, how, how long did it last? Uh, it lasted about, like, almost like two weeks, almost wow. two weeks. Mm-hmm, yeah, because you can buy, like, temporary tattoo paper and, and like, print it out in your computer, so that's what I had done. I had drawn the image, scanned it into the computer, printed it out as a temporary tattoo, and then applied it. And then I had to do a little light Photoshopping to kind of take some of the shininess of it out. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's about two weeks. She got a, she got a kick out of it. And, that's, you know, mm-hmm. I've always tried to use humor in a lot of my artwork because I think you can communicate a lot of serious stuff in a funny way and make it almost more impactful. You know, I think humor is a great tool for making something memorable, making something that is really hard to talk about a little bit easier to talk about. And it's and it's enshrined forever, and and as a photograph on your page, like I said, I heard you talk about it, and I went and looked at it, and there it is, the Golden Girl. <laughs> you know, I mean, and how many, and you know, and I guess that gives her bragging rights. You know, you know, you think you love your kid, well, I love my mm-hmm. kid so much. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cute. You also said that you get a lot of your inspiration from nature. What is it about trees that have have inspired you? You know, that's a great question, Michelle. I love that. You know, um, I I always have loved trees. I think that they're really cool for a variety of reasons. For one, like artistically, from an artistic standpoint, they're like perfect. They have the perfect balance of line and shape, you know, because like a tree is round, but it's all of these little lines that kind of come together and make this bigger form. And then in terms of line weight, the trunk is thick, and then it goes from thick to thin with all of these perfect little tiny branches, but then this great big trunk. And I say this now, I'm looking out my window, looking at my beautiful tree here right in the front yard. And uh, 
they're great because they can be alone by themselves. They're impactful, Uh but then together they create this gorgeous, big, beautiful forest that is a home to so many creatures. So I think there's like kind of like a poetry in that too, in terms of like, you know, the way that people kind of, you can come together and create something bigger than yourself. And then also, too, you know, they're rooted firmly in the ground. They can't move. You know, they must grow where they are planted. And I think that that is, you know, it always reminds me of overcoming adversity. You know, we are put in these situations, and as much as we would like to run away, nothing would happen. If we did, we wouldn't grow, right? If the tree was always Uh moving around, it would never have an opportunity to grow. Uh And so when we're put in situations, we have to be like the tree and stand tall and just do our thing. And even though the wind might be blowing or a fire might be coming, we just have to stand tall and ultimately we'll be just fine because we are designed to withstand that just like the tree is. You know, and that makes you think, you know, because, you know, you, you said like where, where we're planted and like some people will think like, oh, well, you know, from your like really linear, like my family and this is my community. But often you'll see a tree where that seed somehow has landed in some stray place, you know, and here's this mm-hmm. tree and it's like, how did that get there? And it takes on it, and it, like you said, it stands tall and where it is. And often, you know, we might think that we're rooted in this, like this one community, this one place, but maybe we're that seed that got blown, and we landed here, and we've grown. But sometimes we have to look back, look around us, and see how we've flourished. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yes, because even like uh, like pine trees and pine cones, like the seed that's in there, it, it it grows best after a fire. With the fire burns the pine cone, it kind of creates the richest situation for that seed to start growing. And so it's sort of like, you know, you. People in the LGBT community and other kind of minority communities, we have to endure so much, so many fires, Uh so many storms. But ultimately, because of that, we come out stronger and more interesting and more compassionate and more kind than other people who haven't experienced that at all. Uh You know, and I think that is so true. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know what, that is, like you said, it's like we we talk we are that member of that community that like we've we've landed where we have, and often many people in our community can see where they've been beaten down and that but there is is that strength is that resilience and that making of a space where we've landed and as you were talking about the trees, that's what I was thinking about too, you know it's like wow, you know. Maybe we should think of ourselves as that tree where rather if we're part of that forest and, you know, and what trees bring, you know, everywhere from what they're taking out of the air, what they're putting back into it, the canopy that they make so that other things can grow. I mean, there's so much about trees that when we think about being part of the LGBTQ community that 
we're resilient, we make things happen, you know, and that we're there. And, you know, like I said, wind might bend us, but we don't break. There's a fire, but we come back stronger. Uh, was it always nature that sort of like caught your eye that you saw the beauty in the art in nature? You know, yes, and, and that's often what I say is that my favorite artist is Mother Nature. You know, there's so many beautiful natural wonders all around us, and when you look out at, like, a cliffside or a mountainside, like, talk about space, talk about drama. When you watch animals interacting, talk about a performance piece, right, and it's it was kind of, you know, I grew up not in the country. I grew up not anywhere near that. And so it mm-hmm. kind of became my escape. It was my escape, you know, to imagine these other worlds that I could go to in my mind and see all of this beautiful stuff. It was much better than the teeny tiny world I had growing up, you know. And there's just just so much beauty out there, and it's just breathtaking. And I think that as artists, when we make art, that's ultimately what we're trying to do is create these visual experiences or, you know, performance experiences that mirror and honor all of these things that happen around us in the natural world. I'm 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 I've always been very interested in like other cultures all from all different time periods. I love ancient art and everything like that and I've kind of always have been obsessed with ancient art and usually the subject is some type of natural thing, you know, and then mm-hmm. as you, as you learn more and you <clears throat> read more about these cultures, a lot of these things have uh, magical intentions and they were meant to either represent a certain force or call forth a certain energy and I'm not obsessed with that but I'm very interested in that you know kind of these ideas of energies around us and mm-hmm. and magic and art being kind of like the same thing for so long it wasn't until very recently that art became kind of more about decoration and consumption than about creating some kind of change. Excuse me. That's why I appreciate, you know, people that do lectures, people that do performances, people that do the kind of work that you do because like a big part of the art in that is changing people's minds, changing people how changing the way that people think and feel about the world and I think that that's what really good art does is modify people at a very kind of basic energetic level. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say another thing that I noticed that you and I share in common, you have, on your Facebook page, you have that you are an ancient alien theorist. Now, I've been watching, <laughs> I watch, you know, that, what is that, it's on, um, I want to say it's on Netflix, this whole thing about the ancient aliens. And I'm sitting mm-hmm. there, going, you know, some of this makes sense. I can see mm-hmm. this because there is, and even when you talk about art, 
art was a way of communication. It was a way of mm-hmm. storytelling. It was more than just like words or talking mm-hmm. heads. Where now, I mean, where it's like, and as you look at these visual pictures of what the community was like, what was happening, the interaction between often what they said were human types and these gods, which in the in the documentary say could have been ancient aliens. I mean, it helps fuel your imagination and your vision to open up to see that maybe, you know, this is not out of the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always say when people talk, when I talk about ancient aliens, I'm always like, I'm not saying this is true, but what mm-hmm. if it were true? <laughs> like, just mm-hmm. like a thought experiment. What if this were true? Mm-hmm. What if the world is ten times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, a million times larger than we think that it is? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I love it. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh-huh. No, don't you love it? And it's like, you know, you sort of get almost giving you that side eye, but... Sometimes you can get into these conversations and you see people go like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, we take so many other things, you know, just like, okay, fine, you know, why not this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If you're so willing to believe that one thing, why, can that, why can't we just, like, entertain this for half an hour? You know, let's, mm-hmm. just, let's, just, let's just be mm-hmm. for a little bit, you know. Yeah. And, 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 uh, it's so cool. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, you know, again, I love ancient art, too. In that show, it shows so many ancient art from all over the world. And you do Uh see, even just if you take aliens out of the equation, you do see all of these connections between cultures throughout the ages all over the world. And so it really does break down the barrier of, you know, we think we're so different from all these other people when really, if you look at it, we're very similar. Everybody has the mm-hmm. same kind of similar ideas about everything. And so to say that you're so different from us and that it's it's whatever, that's not true, it's false. You haven't just seen the things that, you know, connect us all together. And that's one thing and, you I know, I think that, that to, to, to wax political for a moment, I think that's the saddest thing that you hear when you talk about, <clears throat> when you see how many cultural sites and parts of people's culture that is being, like, destroyed. And mm-hmm. to me, that's often where we might find a common ground, a common understanding, and be able to come together, but, uh, you know, to just destroy it. They are, you know, mm-hmm. where you see in parts of where, where cultural things have just been, like, destroyed just because. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is just, like, so sad. It is because, you know, just because something is destroyed in one part of the world, you're ultimately destroying our kind of world humanity history because, you know, as as society progresses, we are a world culture. Technology mm-hmm. has made it so that cultures aren't really determined anymore by physical spaces. They're determined by these non-physical spaces that we create through the phone and through the internet and all of that stuff, we are a world culture. So when you destroy something, even though it's a hundred thousand miles away from you or whatever, you're still destroying your own history and you're taking away a part of yourself in a way that you could have learned more about yourself and your place in the world. And it is 
a detriment to all people, you know, to take away those things. Well, we're going to take our first break here. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your work as an artist, but also as it is a part of activism in the community. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and my guest is Robert Zarenko. Robert, you know, I met you at Kaleidoscope, which I thought was really good. It was um, about celebrating Pride in Pontiac, but I know that you also participated in the Trans Day of Artivism at uh, Affirmations for a couple of times. You've done Breaking Borders um, at the Tangent Gallery. I mean, there's a lot of places where you, you've been at the Pittman-Puckman Gallery, um, which is also at Affirmations. You've been at a lot of places where it really is talking about, in many ways, art as activism. And when you were talking about art at Kaleidoscope and you saw that, how do you feel I, and I think one of the things that I also liked about that, that the kaleidoscope thing is because many artists, activists are interchangeable, okay? Um, many are members of the LGBTQ community and through their art have helped us move, take a step towards human, becoming more human, even though they might not have gotten recognized or still been uh, ostracized, oppressed within the community at large, but these works that we've done cannot be denied. What do you see as your role as an artist within activism? You know, that's a fabulous question. I think art is a great tool for sharing so many things. I think that was part of the power of the Kaleidoscope art show was that we got to see the way that different queer com- queer people, you know, kind of approach their identity and their place in society. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, I'm I'm really interested in identity politics and I guess because of that I've been interested in art that deals with identity and I think the more we share people with identities that are outside of the what's considered like the norm or the mainstream the more we learn about just the rich tapestry that is the human experience and art is a great tool for activism because people love art I think human beings have a need to express themselves 
and I think we live in a world where we are told that the best way to express ourselves is to consume something. And so, you know, and I think it's a very different type of experience to actually express yourself through making something. And I think people are just drawn naturally to that. It's a great way to get people in the community to come together. And typically, you know, the power of art, too, is to affect people emotionally, whether it's words or images or sounds. You know, you have the ability to speak right to that part of a person that has nothing to do with their body, that is on, like, this different sort of, like, soul level, that has this sort of deep history, this deep memory that connects us to different times, different places, different people. And I think when you bring that emotional component into it, it ultimately makes the experience more memorable, you know. Mm -hmm. We can't you deny know, that we all go ahead. You know, but also that, that you know, <laughs> that you said that people often want to sort of like, like we're like, we are the aliens, you know. These are, you know, mm-hmm. like LGBT culture, but it also points to our intersectionality. I know that one of the people who um, you recognize, um, she had done a, a, a series of pieces that looked like jewelry, but they were houses. But in doing those, not only did she bring her out as a queer person, but she had talked to people, and each house, there was a story behind it. So it also linked her to the community that, that, you know, she wasn't in a vacuum, you know, like, you're not just like this, oh, I'm just doing my art, and that's it, you know, that we are parts of all of these the you know the community that we walk in we live in we we see poverty we see uh, inner city decline we see gentrification we see the past that was in it that might relate directly to our experience personally and even as a member of the LGBTQ community but also to our experience as human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think really that that's, that's one thing I liked about the show and all the pieces I selected, they, you know, spoke to anybody who might have felt othered at some time, which is much larger than just the LGBT community. You know, you have people who are economically disenfranchised, who are discriminated against because of their race or even because of the way that they grew up. Maybe they were an immigrant, you know, something like that. We all have something that displaces us from the mainstream. The mainstream and normal really is a concept that is put forward to, you know, it's a very colonial concept where there's a type of normal person and everybody else that's not normal needs to be eliminated in order to further this normal agenda, you know, and all of that artwork, I think really would have spoke to anybody seeing it, anybody who's lived in the house, anybody who has kind of felt a little like the piece of furniture with like the quirky lines uh-huh. and kind of the broken seat, anybody who's felt like a broken seat before. And uh, I think it's important to speak to all people on that level because ultimately what makes something relatable is not perfectness. Something that is 
or feels perfect is ultimately going to feel alienating because nobody is perfect. Nobody has not experienced something that has put a crack in them. And so if you're talking about making an artwork that speaks to people or that they can relate to is going to have to be somewhat imperfect. Like the houses, the jewelry, all the houses were cut up into slices. It wasn't this kind of perfect picture of a house. It was sort of deconstructed and, 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 and almost, almost shattered, you know, but then put back together in a way that gave it a form that was familiar and I think that work was really powerful. You know, in my own work, I've definitely tried to use art to talk about politics, talk about identity, mm-hmm. and just the larger concept of having an identity. How do you form your identity? Who are you? Where, how, is your, how do your experiences shape you? What does your physical form have to do with any part of your identity and your feelings and stuff like that? And one of my, probably one of my largest, earliest projects that dealt with a lot of that stuff plus ancient aliens was my graduate thesis show. It was a project that I did. It was uh, it was called Lesbian Ancient Aliens. Mm-hmm. And I put together this false archive of artifacts, writings, things like that. Some of the things I had created, some things that I, I appropriated. I even appropriated a few pieces from the museum's collection because the show was in the Eli and Edith Broad Museum. And I, <laughs> I even appropriated the museum itself because because <laughs> when, when I was told that our show was going to be in the museum, I was like, okay, I'm going to use this opportunity to put stuff out there that I know no institution, no mainstream institution would ever put in it. So I didn't even put my name on it. I made it seem like this lesbian ancient alien archive was a special show put on by the museum itself. And it featured artifacts from, I think, like to, like like 15 or so um, famous women throughout history who have either been, either self-identified as lesbians and that, that fact had been concealed by historians in the future or were kind of, you know, discovered later in life, you know, documents would come forward and mm-hmm. that sort of person's lifestyle would be revealed. And... So each each artifact had like a story behind it. So like I had a piece of Amelia Earhart's airplane in there. And so then there was a story that talked about how, you know, and, and Amelia Earhart was a good example too because she had documented relationships with men and women, but in mm-hmm. today's in today's culture would probably also be considered either non-binary or transgender because Mm -hmm. they openly said that they do not feel like a woman all of the time, you know? And so Mm -hmm. 
the story was that she was abducted by aliens. That's how she disappeared, obviously. <laughs> you know, she, <laughs> she was abducted by aliens. And, and that's why we don't know where she is, you know. <laughs> exactly, because she's on a different planet right now, you know, just living her best life with the other lesbian ancient aliens. And uh, the, the the best part about this was it didn't matter who it was. It, if it was Amelia Earhart or I had the Sword of Joan of Arc, I had Jane Addams Nobel Peace Prize, I had um, a statue from ancient Greece that was supposed to be Sappho, you know. It didn't matter who it was. When people came and looked at the installation, they either said, the, usually the first thing they said was that person wasn't a lesbian, you know, and it was like they would totally, you know, look over the alien part and the fact that these women were lesbians would like blow their minds. Like that was really the part that they couldn't wrap their heads around because it was such a paradigm shift. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about ancient aliens was if you even consider these things for a moment, it is going to change the way that you look at the world and look at other people in the world and kind of relate to other people. And once you kind of realize that these women were lesbians or outside of the mainstream or LGBTQ, however you want to say it, it also was a paradigm shift that makes the way that you kind of look at those people and their role in history different. It also makes the way that you look at other kinds of history different because ultimately that's kind of what I was speaking to in that piece was the way that preconceived notions, cultural biases, and everything else go into the creation of what we consider history. So when you pick up a history book or you pick up a different kind of book and you read it, you have to understand that parts of it are not true, if not all of them are not true. And you need to be really, really critical of what you read, even if it's in a college setting, even if it's in a graduate program. You have to be very critical of what you read because there are all of these cultural biases and sort of hidden agendas and hidden systems of control and oppression in everything you kind of read, look at, watch on TV, everything. Nothing is neutral. Nothing Mm -hmm. is neutral. I know that as an artist, as I make things, it is heavily influenced by my point of view, you know what I mean? You know, you just can't, you can't escape it. You know, it's just the way that that type of thing works, you know. And I really, you know, again, I wanted to use sort of this concept of ancient aliens and this sort of truth-telling about identity to speak to this larger issue of we need to be critical of society and we need to really be critical of the people that try to control us and tell us what is right and what is wrong and what we can do and what we cannot do because that's ultimately going to be the way that we begin to break down systems of oppression is by being critical of them. If you're not critical of them, if you're like, oh, it's okay, that's just how it is, Mm -hmm. nothing is going to change. You know, you have to really sit back and look at, well, wait, who is telling me this? Why are they telling? Why are they telling me this? What is their agenda? And what is my agenda? What is my ultimate goal in believing something or sharing something or some type of information? Mm. And so, yeah, obviously, it, 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 what was no. Go ahead. Because I, I I went and I saw you know you have like on on your page a video walkthrough and and it was like on loan from the Olympia Museum of Lesbian <laughs> Ancient Aliens. 
I mean, what was, I mean, what was the reaction to people? What, what was feedback did you get from that? Did some people go like that? Did they look at it and then afterwards go, wait a minute? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, that was very much the reaction. And that was, you know, cause that was part of my idea of appropriating the museum by making it look like the museum put it on. Cause a museum uh-huh. is one of those types of institutions that people trust, particularly in art. People are used to being like, Oh, I saw that piece in a museum. It must be amazing and, and awesome, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> when yeah. really it's like, Typically not. You see a lot of bad art in museums. You see a lot of art that is, you know, promoting of oppressive ideas and is ultimately sexist or racist and stuff like that. I mean, MoMA just in, you know, the collection, MoMA's collection in New York is like 97% male. I think they've 3% uh-huh. of their collection was made by women artists. And that's like, such that's so crazy to me because it's like, Honestly, in all of my college classes that I ever took and taught, the majority of people in those classes were women at Painting with a Twist, which is like one of the few places that you can go to do something creative. The majority of customers are women. And Uh even in the tattoo industry, the majority of our customers are women. And so to say that only 3% of your collection is made by women is like vastly disproportionate to the number of people in the art world that are actually practicing, actually making art and actually consuming art, it's mostly women. And and just because just because all of that art in MoMA is there doesn't mean it's any good. Doesn't mean uh-huh. that we should even really be looking at it. You know, it's the same as like a textbook. We know how textbooks have the tendency to just magically glaze over the issues of like genocide and colonialism in the United States, you know, and, and there's lots of important things missing from those textbooks that would give you information about how the, you know, the way the world really works. And so I really wanted to use the museum as a, as a, I wanted to be critical of the museum and museums in general, you know, and people Uh would see it and they would be like, what is this? I don't believe this. I don't know what's going on. But then if it spoke to someone, like if you were part of the community, like there were some people that would, I remember at the opening, there were people and they would, they, they stayed and they read every single label and looked at every single piece and were with that piece for an hour or more because it was speaking to them. It was telling a history that uh-huh. they didn't know before and that was there all along. You know, old, I, and older people were interested, younger people were interested and it was like, I remember this one woman, she was older and she, she did, she just, she stayed so long with that piece and you could tell that it was like shifting her paradigm because, you know, as an LGBT person, as a minority person, you know, there's so, there's so many people that have been forgotten or purposely hidden in our past because they know that if we had access to those figures, it would give us power. You know, Mm -hmm. when someone takes away your history, it takes away your power. If you don't know that where you come from has strength and is strong, you feel weak. 
And so when you discover these figures, you know, either contemporary or from the past, it makes you stronger. And I think that that was what was important about that piece. You know, it's, it, it created a history that wasn't there before. And even, you know, or that wasn't widely shared or that was mm-hmm. hidden, purposely hidden. And I think that anytime you bring something like that to light, it changes the that we think about the world, you know, especially it's helpful if it helps us make us more critical of the world and critical of systems of power. And it wasn't a perfect that, piece, but uh-huh. <laughs> it wasn't perfect, but it, you know, I, even I have some critic criticisms of that piece now looking uh-huh. back, but it was what it was. But, you know, I think that there is that importance of it, because like you were saying, like if you go, because there's the bigger picture, like you said, like how most of these artists, like at MoMA, at, at many of these, these things, are men, by men who are promoting a certain type of political, societal view. And we might not think that, but, you know, as you go through and you go through and you look at, you know, uh, art piece, and you go, it has defined what we think, how we define beauty, how we define class, how we define so many things that it's important to have spaces, to have exhibits like that, to where when people go in and look at it, they look at things different. I recall, and I want to say it was Proust, I was reading and he was saying about the important, like, if you went in a museum and you saw a bowl of fruit and from the shadowing and everything, when you went home, it was important to have art because when they went home, people would look at fruit more than just like, you know, give me that apple, give me that orange. Mm-hmm. And so isn't it the same by having venues and events where you have these different perspectives to help evolve I would say yes and you know you know art art has been used for so many things over the past you know and I do think that by including all of these different kind of voices and viewpoints it does change the way that we look at just about everything I think about Romari Bearden's collages that he does, some sort of urban inner city settings, and they're so beautiful and they have such a rhythm to them and they sort of transform the materials that are there around them. I show his work a lot to my students because, uh-huh. you know, I, I like the subject matter. It's obviously very good art as well from the term of like the principles of art and design and the way that he transforms these common everyday collage materials into these beautiful art pieces, I think is also important, you know, as a, as kind of like a concept and sort of the way that we can take things around us and take them and turn them into more beautiful things. You know, even though it feels like we don't have much or we don't have enough, we have plenty to kind of change the way that, we see the world and in turn others see the world or just even kind of share how we see the world. I think including all of those different viewpoints is 
radically important because you could have a show that was all about fruit. But if you had uh-huh. 20 different artists from 20 different places in the world in 20 different situations, that's a lot of different ways to look at fruit, you know. Uh-huh. And sure, you know, you know, we can increase our appreciation of just everyday things around us. And I think that, you know, bringing more beauty into our life doesn't necessarily mean bringing more beautiful things into our life. It can be just like looking at things and appreciating them in a new way. And I think art can do that, you know. But, you know, when it comes to museums and galleries, I always think about these sort of like systems of validation that we have Mm -hmm. and how that automatically can make something seem more important than something else. And I think a lot of those systems have been used to oppress people, truthfully, Mm -hmm. you know, and the level of discrimination that you see in places like that is just so high and it makes it kind of intolerable sometimes to think about how much these institutions are responsible for the way that people think about the importance of art and the importance of certain types of people and groups of people. And I don't know, I, you know, as an artist, I, I go back and forth on galleries and museums because so, so many galleries now are just high end outlets for consuming artwork and they don't, they don't really that's why I enjoyed that 2020 kaleidoscope show because it was like uh-huh. no one was really there to make a buck. No one was trying to buy anything at, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, sure, someone yeah. might love a piece of artwork and take it home, but ultimately it was sort of about bringing together and showcasing the work of our community and having a cultural event. And uh-huh. I think that that is really where the power of art is and is, creating cultural events, creating reasons for people to come together and to celebrate and making our, our work and our lives visible, you know, mm-hmm. coming, coming out of not the shadows per se, but coming out and really saying that this is what we do, this is what we make. And that's something that always kind of irritated me about this coming back of Detroit. Oh, Detroit's coming back. Oh, Detroit's coming back. <laughs> Detroit has Detroit has always had a super <laughs> vibrant art scene, okay? <laughs> it really has, you know, and to say that now Detroit has art, now things are going on, to me that's just like blatantly classist, blatantly racist, ignoring the decades and mm-hmm. centuries of art that has been coming out of there and it really is just straight up ignorant and I feel like that's just like a way to to sell it, you know what I mean? Oh, now it's this cool place. Oh, we have murals now. Did you know? I know, like, oh, I know. Did, <laughs> You know, you know, I mean, I hate that, that comeback, you know, and you want to go like, Diego Rivera, okay? All right, let's just shut up right. there, you know. But there have been people here, like, forever. I worked with a youth program, and, and they were constantly, like, they did um, murals. They were in southwest Detroit, and these kids were working on this mural. They were coming up with their designs. This older guy comes up, and he's doing it. This is Pablo Davis, who had worked with Diego Rivera. 
I mean, so don't call it a comeback. I mean, you know, we've had people who mm-hmm. have been here who are great, amazing artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a number of murals that have been here and around that, and it's just like, you know, it just like drives me crazy. Creating Change was here last year, and um, they asked me if I would like do a, a open one of the opening plenaries. And one of the things is like, guys, because everybody's excited to be here because it's such a great, you know, story of comeback. And you know, and I opened it and I said, you know, I want. I said, let me, you know. So I talked about many of the things that have happened. And I said, I said, but let me borrow from that great philosopher LL Cool J. Don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years. I mean, and that is just like, I guess I'm sick of seeing that. Detroit is such a rich cultural community from all different types of culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yes. And so. I mean, but, but, but it, it is. It's just like, it's just like really crazy. And, you know, really crazy. But, um, one of the things, too, you know, I, I just think that it's so important that we have all these different kinds uh, of, of venues and showing things. We're going to take mm-hmm. our second break, and then I want to get back into your art, and we'll segue into body art. Better not. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. with Robert Zrinko. Robert, I'm going to tell you, um, I think the art is so important. I can recall um, I took one, I told you I worked with a group of youth. We went to Chicago. We went to the DuSable Museum. And we were so fortunate. We got there almost like at closing time. And there was uh, a docent who took us around. And he took us to one picture. And he said, um, what do you see? And the kids looked at it and they said, oh, it's just slavery. And he said, no, look at it. And what he showed, he said, was what you see is you see, like, artisans. You see people who are building this country, you know. So, and, and you see the strength of a people who, even though they were oppressed, what they were doing and, and making this country. And it led to a level of conversation that was, you know, took them beyond from what they expected when I said we're going to a museum, you know, mm-hmm. talking about who they were and their strengths. You do a lot of things in the community. You also um, participated with the NSO. How did you get involved mm-hmm. with the NSO? And what, what did you find from that? What did you get from that? Uh, you know, I really enjoyed that experience. That was, um, 
that was awesome for me. And we got I got hooked up with them because um, Denise, who is I can't remember, she's like the director or something at the NSO. She is a frequent customer at Painting with a Twist, mm-hmm. and. Yes, and so as an artist there, she kind of invited me to be part of that project, and I got to work with the, I think it's a partnership with the John, uh, I think it's Saw, that's how you say his last name, Foundation, and he's an artist, Mm -hmm. and he does a lot of community projects like that, and uh, basically for that, what we did was a bunch of different artists created smaller versions, like small, uh, we painted these men, because that's part of John's work, is he does these men cutouts, and then we'll install them around. So I painted a man with, like, this tattoo motif. He had tattoo flowers all over him, and these kind of, like, psychedelic flower colors with, like, some gold on it and stuff like that. And then those pieces got auctioned off, and then the proceeds went back to the NSO. And it was cool, because I got to go to the NSO a few times, I think it's a really amazing concept to take an old building like that and turn it into housing for people that Mm -hmm. really need housing. You know, I live here in Hazel park and they're, it's kind of growing. And so they're creating all these new builds and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I'm the type of person that thinks that like houses themselves are like part of that culture consumerism and mm-hmm. sort of furthers things that aren't even super healthy for our society. Like I, I believe in that houses, I believe in intergenerational living. I think people yep. should live with their kids and their grandparents. I think that creates a better support system. I'm not a super huge fan of like two parents and kids and then you, you know, whatever. I don't think that that is honestly the healthiest way that we should live. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, so I really loved what they had done there and I thought it was a great use for that building. And I think there's so many buildings like that that can be done that way. And, uh, I, I live painted, they had a, at the event, they had an event where they auctioned it off and I live painted and then my painting and the other paintings were auctioned off as well. I loved that. That was super fun. And, uh, you know, I am really interested in the way that art can serve community because, you know, I growing up I didn't know a lot of artists, okay? I only really knew one artist. It was like my aunt's friend's husband who <laughs> came from, yes, right, who came, he came from okay. Scotland and died when I was like eight. So I didn't even really know him, but he was like the only person whose like work I ever got to see in real life. And he was a painter, he did watercolors, he did everything like that. And as I got older, you know, his wife who survived him had all this work. And it's been maybe over 20 years since he's passed. She still has all this work. It's like falling apart. It's molding. It's rotting. Mm. And okay. she she's too old to take care of it, you know. And it's just like, it was like haunting because, you know, it really made me see that as an artist, the things that I'm producing, like, why do I want to produce a bunch of stuff? You know, that uh-huh. seems so capitalist. I produce, produce all this stuff, and then it just kind of sits around, 
and either rots or becomes a burden. Truthfully, it's, I think it's like a burden on her at this point. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to burden people with my work. You know, as much as I love to make art, I really don't want it to be something that people have to like move around, shuffle around, blah, 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 find a space for it, keep it, you know. And so I maybe, you know, came to that realization like a few years ago where I was like, I need to create a more sustainable practice that doesn't rely on the creation of stuff mm-hmm. per se. And so that's when I really, you know, really, really got interested. I had always been interested in art and activism, but that's when I really got interested in art and activism. And was like, this is a sustainable practice that helps people that doesn't create all of this stuff And I'm using my skills to, you know, create a better world. You know, I think artists have been trying to use their work to create a more beautiful world. What if we create, what if, what if our, what if my idea of beauty is a, is a world where people get together, you know, and don't discriminate against each other and try to live in harmony and shit like that. I think that's, excuse me. And then I think that has a beauty and a power to it that is going to survive some 200-year-old crusty oil painting by some dead guy, you know. I don't know. So that might that might be just me a little using a little hyperbole, but uh, mm-hmm. I had a really I had a really fun time with that project. And of course, the Trans Day of Artivism. It's an all day long art festival by all trans artists, and I met so many amazing people at that. That was a project that actually started a few years ago with a man named Darnell Jones, mm-hmm. and Darnell was a pharmacist, and he worked at affirmations with another doctor and they put on a basically a clinic to give people access to hormones so that they didn't have to spend a ton of money on doctors and letters and blah 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 I was one of his first patients if not his first patient and he was an amazing human being and he passed away a couple of years ago, and I still miss him tremendously, mm-hmm. but he was a huge inspiration because he he could get along with anybody. He could get along with anybody, and he loved art, and he loved music, and he just, you know, when you talk to him about these things, you could just feel the love just, like, radiating off of him. It was amazing. I know very few people like that. He really was a one of a kind person. And it was him and me and another person that put together the first trans day of artivism. And then once he passed, we kind of slowed down on it, but then we brought it back last year. And I think it's really important to have cultural events, you know, like that where it's, gives a voice to people who normally are not given a voice. And we had, musicians and we had writers performing and Mm -hmm. we had I ran a a group studio work ran a workshop during that so people could come and make art all day long and get that kind of cathartic experience and that was amazing you know that's a a testimony to 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 Donnell because you know I know many people um who knew him who worked with mm -hmm. him like who through GNA um, and all of them talk about this person who was so full of love and the difference that he made. And even at 
some of the other events that they had. And I'm trying to think of one that had to do with photography, and I'm, I'm, and I'm blanking on it. But his daughter came. Oh his daughter came. I mean, and it, and it sort of says the difference one person can make in, in showing being open to being supportive of caring about people, you know, I, and I think that's a, the testimony to, ongoing testimony to him that whenever something comes up, that someone who was involved with that mentions his name. Um, I had talked with, um, I want to say it's Brayden Asher. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brayden brought him up. He just transcend the binary, and he brought him up, you know. And so yeah. how, that is just like phenomenal, that, that, that that's his legacy. That's a living legacy. And like you said, more so than I hear you because about things that maybe, like you said, there's so much she's got these things, she can't do them. He made a living legacy that through art, by encouraging you and others, continues to go on. Yeah, and I think that is so important. Um, It really is. How, you know, it used to be, you know, that artists were valued. You know what I mean? I mean, now it's difficult for someone to just, I mean, actually, they have to make a decision to shift their, their thinking about what is success, what is wealth, if you want to be, committed to doing your art. You mm-hmm. are one of those people. Like, you know, you're not worried about having, like, you know, your huge bank account and, and you know, being in these galleries and having, you know, the, the on display tonight, Robert Zirinko coming in. You know, <laughs> you're, you're doing your thing. You're finding other ways to, to do art, like you're bringing it to these people who come with painting for a twist. You also would do tattoos. How did you, what was your thought process in coming up to that and that what you would share with someone who was into art but was sort of like, you know, well, I guess I better get in a degree in accounting too because, you know, art ain't going to cut it. What would you say to them? You know, I would say that, you know, because originally the reason that I went to grad school was so that I could become a teacher. That was my goal was I was going to be like, oh, I'll teach, and that will kind of support my work. And uh, unfortunately, every time I got a teaching position, I would take a step in my transition, and the timing just always worked out that every time I would take a step in my transition, I would be let go. And... Mm -hmm it really showed me that those institutions were supporting a lot of the negative stuff that I was speaking out against. And that's probably why, you know, that it, it caused me a lot of problems because I really love teaching. I really do. I love art. And teaching art is a great way to put that together. But honestly, I don't really recommend going to grad school in particular anymore to artists. I Mm -hmm. don't necessarily think that even people, you know, I think you have to be really careful about 
how you select your college program. You know, probably, you know, one of the best things for me going to school was all of my classes that weren't art classes. Like I took anthropology, I took women and gender studies, you know, human sexuality, um, history, science, and all of that really created a bigger picture of the world for me. My gender studies teachers were awesome. I still talked to some of them and uh, took African-American literature with Dr. Heather Neff. All of these things made me a better artist because they made me a better person with a bigger perspective on the world, you know. And um, people can do that People can do that just by growing their community. I think that capitalism as an oppressive power relies on kind of separating people and isolating people in houses and sort of making them not talk to each other because the more you talk to people and the more different types of people you talk to, the wider perspective you get on the whole world. And in a world of technology that we have today, you can access all of that stuff for relatively inexpensive. If you do choose to go to a university or a grad school, it's because you're pursuing a more institutionalized form of art or education. Uh-huh. And I really believe that, I believe that people should be able to make whatever type of art they want. They should. But at the same time, again, I'm very critical of institutions, and you really have to ask yourself, does this institution support what I'm trying to do with my life's mission? And for me, these institutions do not support my life mission. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I might not, you know, ever be super rich, but in my heart, I know that it's a better thing. And that's why, that's why I love tattoos. Tattoos are always something I wanted to be a part of, but I will say my mother, uh-huh. as encouraging as she is, she did not think that tattooing <laughs> was good for me, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, the one thing I like about it that has been really refreshing is I can connect to so many different types of people. When your art is in a gallery, you're waiting for some rich person to come and spend a couple thousand dollars on it. That's not everybody. That's an increasingly smaller percentage of the world today. So if I'm talking about making art that reaches the people, tattooing is probably the best way to do it. You know, it appeals to all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. It has a deep historical connection to all of these ancient cultures, right? Uh Tattooing, it didn't originate anywhere. It is a world tradition. It cropped up in every single part of the world from a time before we could even know it, you know? So it is one of those practices that has a deep, 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 deep history and a a wide, wide, wide world history, which is one thing that I love about it. Painting is is such from such a particular time and place and, and group of people that it doesn't have that appeal that tattoos have. Tattoos are instantly accessible. I think that, you know, they've done studies that say that, you know, our past is encoded directly into our DNA. So it strikes us, tattooing strikes us on a level that transcends 
the past 200 years. It goes back tens of thousands of years. And it has this deeply mystical past that I think we are desperately missing that has been eradicated by colonialism in today's times. It's also much different than painting because when you make a painting, you maybe interact with someone for 10 minutes when they buy it. When you're uh-huh. doing a tattoo, you are with that person one-on-one uh-huh. for hours. Your connection yep. is so much different. It is so deep. And you have a real ability to talk to that person and touch them on a level that them just buying a print or buying a painting would never do, would never do. You know, part of what I think I do as a tattoo artist is, you know, therapy, you know, to not, uh-huh. not therapy. I'm not going to qualify it like that. But when people come and they have this kind of experience where they're like synthesizing pain into beauty, I think that uh-huh. really speaks to our process as people, especially minority people, where we are confronted with all this pain, but ultimately, you know, we can make beautiful things out of it. We can be inspired by it and transform that pain. And I would rather, you know, sit in a room and tattoo, you know, four people a day than have a big grand art opening that a bunch of people I don't know come to and maybe hope that they buy a painting, you know, and then they can, then I'll never see it again. It just goes in their house and who knows who is going to see it, you know. I love how tattooing makes everybody your friend, right? You have to talk to that person. You have to connect with them on a human level. Otherwise, their experience is going to be crap. They're never going to come back and see you. And uh, you have an an ability to connect with a wider range of people as well, which is something that I I always appreciate. Yeah, because I'll tell you, um, there was a stigma to it, you know, know, because I can recall – I mean, for years I wanted to get tattoos, and I think that it was like, I think my mother always asked me, did I intend to be a sailor or was I going to prison? And I'm going mm-hmm. like, no, it's more than that. But like you said, there's something about it because um, there's that, that thought that you think about it, that you're going you're going into it. And, and I've talked to other people where, like you said, it, it can be celebrating something it can be remembering something it can it can show a transition from from one point of life to another um it can be about pain it can be about joy it can be remembrances i mean there's so much to it and like you said you know you put people sometimes they put some thought to it they have something in mind but then when you go and you sit down with this person who's going to do this work with you i mean they help you develop it to be what you want it to be. But then there is a connection that happens as you're sitting there with them for a while and they're doing this work on you. And like you said, you get to know each other. There's a connection between you. There's something that you want to go out and tell the world with this. And it is body out. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, even even the one that you did with your mom, although it was temporary, I mean, I can just imagine the time being there together and, mm-hmm. you know, the shared memories of it. You know, there's something special mm-hmm. about tattoos. Do you find, yeah. are you seeing, and I mean, and I am seeing now people 
I mean, you're surprised at the people who have tattoos, you know. I mean, are you seeing, like, a, a broader audience coming in? And what are they, What? how has it evolved, like, from just, like, I love Joe <laughs> to some of the, you know, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, from the Mickey Mouse tattoo to what you're doing now. How has it evolved with the people you're seeing and what you're doing? You know, that's a fabulous question. I think um, probably the biggest change is, again, the demographic has changed. It's like everybody wants a tattoo, like you say. It's, it's, it's not just a certain group of people. It's, it's just about everybody. And, uh, in, and what I think it's become, too, is, like I said, there's more and more women getting tattooed. The majority of our customers are women. And I think that that is partially because, and that's something that kept me out of the tattoo world for so long as a, you know, as a trans person and a gay person, you're like, is this place safe for me? Am I going to be safe here? Because, you know, you hit, you know, there's, it's a, it, it sort of turned into a particular image. Like, you know, I don't want to use a certain term like toxic masculinity, but so many mm-hmm. tattoo shops are just like, dudes and we're like here we are I'm going to tattoo you there's no like (laughs) it takes away all of like the kind of like special magical part of it and I honestly think that since more women have been getting tattooed it's changed and it's become more about beautification it's become about you know a little bit more about sort of like emotion and memory and the more magical things about it because back in the day you know thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, all over the world, you would use a tattoo as some type it had some type of purpose, you know. It was either to different symbols would like boost different certain qualities. So you could get a tattoo that symbolized strength and in turn it would increase your strength. You know, you could get a tattoo of a certain like figure, like relig- like god goddess figure, and that would give you qualities like that goddess. You know, you would get it at um, certain periods of the year to kind of mark your appearance at that event or during that time of year. In um, I remember reading a book recently, and in Africa, the majority, in this one area, the majority of people doing the tattoos were women to begin with, and one of the most popular events that they would have the tattooing at would be singles events, and it would be, you would go there, and as a single person, you would get tattooed in front of all the other single people, and it would sort of be like a testament to your strength. It would be a real way to like get to know somebody by seeing them experience this painful process. And so I think as women have come more to power and have brought this historical legacy with them, because you see so many places all over the world, South America, the majority of people doing the tattooing were women. As you see all of these things come forward, you get, it's like we're reconnecting to a past that has always been there and we're bringing forth this like resurgence of art and and magic and intention. Every tattoo I do, I try to put some sort of intention behind it. Because once you sit with someone and you talk to them, they're already in a vulnerable position because they're trusting you to do something to them that if you don't do it right, you know, it's going to look really bad, you know. And uh-huh. it hurts. 
you know, it, it yeah. hurts. Let's be honest, you know, it hurts. You know, so they're already in a vulnerable position, and they're ready to sort of inadvertently disclose things about them, you know, and you can really kind of use that art and your intention to create really positive experiences for people. And I always say the the majority, the, the meaning behind a tattoo rarely comes from what the tattoo is. It usually comes from the time you got it done, your emotional state when you got it done, what you were thinking about when you got it done. And that that is really where the true meaning comes from. So you could get a tattoo of anything, and if it happened near the death of a parent or something, that's what it would symbolize to you, you know. And it's sort of like this this personal history that people get to create, and especially women whose histories have been denied, and LGBT people whose histories have been obscured and denied and just purposely concealed, you know, and rewriting the history of people who were enslaved and stuff like that. I think it's a really powerful moment for people to define themselves and their identity and speak to their own personal histories through their tattoos. And I also Uh think we live in a society where people my age, we don't necessarily have houses. We can't afford houses. We probably have like six roommates. We move around a lot. It doesn't (laughs) make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense for Uh us to buy artwork because we don't have anywhere to put it, you know, uh-huh. But it does make sense to put it on your body that you always have, that you can walk around with. You know, I think that's like a direct, like, economic influence as well. And so it's, I think it's a really exciting art field. I love the historical implications of it. I think that you're going to see more people from the art world moving into the tattoo world because it is a very lively place and it is not an elite place. And that is one of the other things I like about it. It sort of misses all of these other institutions of power and goes right to the people. And I remember being in grad school and they would always ask me, who is your audience? Who is your audience? And I would be like, people, you know, everybody Uh in my audience. I'm not trying to speak to one person or 10 people or the 20 rich people that go to this one gallery. I want to talk to everybody. I think everybody needs to know this. I think it's important that we all are here, you know? And so tattooing connects me to everybody. And that's something that I really appreciate about that. Uh, uh, Well, we're coming towards the end of our time here together. Um, I'm thinking, What's next for you? How do people find out about the things that you're doing or contact you if they're ready to do that next step in body art? Okay, great. Yes, you know, I have an active Facebook page. I have an active Instagram, and you can check out a lot of my work there. You can just look me up, Robert Zarenko, Z-U-R-E-N-K-O, or look at the name on the podcast. Um, I'm also my studio work group too. You can look us up. We're studio work, studio, and then W E R Q. We have a lot of stuff cooking. You know, I kind of started studio work as a way to bring queer artists together to do projects that were bigger than just one person. And, uh, This year we have a lot planned. We're going to be having an event for the trans day of visibility. We Uh are also currently planning the very first ever Hazel Park Pride event. Oh. And 
And so we already have the date is going to be June 20th. It's going to be here at Scout Park, right down the street from me here in Hazel Park. And we are having a barbecue. We are having a Pride in the Park barbecue. We are keeping it low-key, fun, come just relax and hang out. I know Pride can get very exciting and overwhelming. There's so much to do, so much to see. So we are having the sweatpants event of Pride, <laughs> dress cozy. I love that. I love that, you know. Because <laughs> someday you want to be with your peeps, but you don't want to march. You don't want to protest. You know, you just want to hang. You know, I love that. That's right. And Hazel Park is a very laid-back community, and we wanted to create an event that would encourage local people to come as well. You know, we didn't want to. In Hazel Park, there's a very strong divide between the old Hazel Park people and the people that have newly been moving in. A lot of those people newly moving in are very diverse. And so we wanted to kind of create an event that would appeal to all of those people, families. There's a huge playground. The playground that's at Scout Park is one that we actually – Studio work worked with a group of community or community volunteers, and we all painted the painted the play structure. And so we love the park, and it's very family friendly. Very much just we got grills, bring some hot dogs, bring a Bud Light. You know, come on down, old and new, coming together just to hang out and talk. We want to have some music. We want to have some people coming and maybe doing some some speeches or something like that, we are doing it a little different than a lot of the other prides that you see. And, uh, well, I am definitely all... putting it on my calendar. I mean, it sounds, it sounds really nice, just like, <laughs> okay, great. you know, during, during that period of time to have some place where you can just sort of like hang out with your peeps, you know? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> relax and just kind of be, you know, just be, Uh you know, I think a lot of other pride events like the Ferndale pride and the motor city pride, they're so big. There's Uh so many people. And like a big part of the Ferndale pride is like the bars and stuff like that. And that's not necessarily Uh the most like family friendly atmosphere. And uh, so we really want to try to make it so like anybody in Hazel Park could come. And if they want to bring the kids, bring the kids. If you want to bring grandma and Parker at a bench, do it, you know. Just be <laughs> chilling out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're that really is... looking forward to that. That, uh, that sounds great. Uh, I really does. That sounds really great. Um <laughs> Well, Robert, I want to thank you for taking the time um, to be with me today. Uh, I will definitely be in touch with you on so many levels. Uh, I want to stay in touch with you. I love what you're doing. And will your mom be there? Of course. She's going to be. <laughs> of course. She comes to almost all of our stuff. She's our, she's our in-house mom. She's there to give you a hug if you need a hug, you know, she is, I, what did I tell you yesterday? I was like, age faster so you can retire and <laughs> come work for me. And you want to know what she said? She said, you would work for me. And I said, oh, my goodness, okay, all right. All so. right, all right. She said, she said, I love that. I love that. Oh, I, can't, I can't wait to meet her. I really can't wait to meet her. Oh, boy. 
you you know how to contact me. I know how to contact you. I do. I do. And thank you so much, Michelle. I had a great time. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I think you are fabulous, and I am honored to be on your podcast today. Truly honored. I want to thank my guest, Metro Detroit artist Robert Zarenko. Zarenko's work revolves around the intersection of ideas embedded in gender identity, sexuality, popular culture, and the context in which they're presented. His passion for nature and harmony drives his work, and he loves connecting the world back to itself through people and art. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.